0: This is part two of our episode on the war on disabled people. We're continuing our conversation with Ellen Clifford, a disabled activist who has worked within the disability sector for over 20 years and is a current member of the National Steering Group for Disabled People Against Cuts. In this episode, Ellen unpacks the ways in which people with disabilities are made to feel invisible, how austerity reversed progress for disability rights, the future of disability rights and how to break that cycle of inaccessibility and much, much more. Take a listen. All these examples, be it just austerity cuts or forcing this false choice, as you said, of reopening the economy whilst trying to silo Disabled people, as if like as if that's actually possible. All these different things, I feel like, is the government and just like just systematically this feeling of being made to be invisible, or just people from positions of power just trying to erase disabled people. And you talk about the concept of invisibility in your book a little bit. You know, it's not just government benefits. I'm also thinking about the built environment and how even just like the, how we even interact with our urban environments, it's all so political, whether we realize it or not. And there's so many ways that even just the structures that we build, let alone the things that we legislate are made to erase people. And I'm wondering how you, how you navigate that.
1: Yeah. These are things that we do constantly think about. And going back to your earlier point about barriers to, activism, of course getting <laughs> getting to protests when so much of the public transport system is inaccessible is a real issue. You know, we can't we can't get out and protest in numbers because people can't mobilize in numbers because of all those different barriers. When disabled campaigners organize protests, we have to make sure that we have the funds to pay for people to get there however they can and, and that might well be by Taxi journeys, which are very expensive because people don't have any other way to get there given those kind of urban barriers that we experience. But what we try to do is we try to make ourselves visible and we try to go to those positions of power where decisions are made about our lives. And those places are usually inaccessible because they're often very old buildings, such as Parliament or the High Court, for example, when we're taking legal actions. And the effort of just getting, for example, into an inaccessible courtroom becomes in itself a form of, I guess, activism, because it really highlights for the people in there, you know, for example, the judges who are in there, who've never realised, because they've never had cause to question how, inaccessible to disabled people their courtrooms are for example when we have meetings in parliament those you can there are ways i mean it is accessible by lifts but you have to go round. wheelchair users have to go round all the back ways actually through the kind of myriad corridors that exist in parliament the narrow corridors where you know the mps and the lords use to get between their rooms so that makes you even more visible if you like because you shouldn't ordinarily be allowed in those areas. And then when we have meetings in Parliament, you, know, you can't get a large number of wheelchair users in a room. So people will be spilling out into the corridors. And we don't actually think that's a bad thing because that makes us even more visible. Being there for us is kind of a, just being there is an act of protest in that we're making ourselves visible. So we do try deliberately to have meetings in those in those places to throw off that invisibility. Uh, It's very easy for people to make decisions about people when they can't see them and they don't have to look them in the eye and acknowledge the consequences in terms of human impact. I mean we've done this. I mean uh, we haven't actually stopped the (laughs) the direction of travel in terms of cuts. Um, But we've definitely made it very difficult along the way and there are certainly measures that the government have not been able to implement that they would have they would definitely have wanted to and as depressing as it is that we haven't you know (laughs) been able to reverse the changes at least you know we know that we fought every step of the way to make them think to acknowledge what they're doing to, to have to to have to acknowledge the impact of what they're doing and there have been like concrete measures that we have been able to that we have been able to stop them implementing but we've also done a lot of things where we've been out on the streets and our aim has been specifically to raise public awareness of what's happening and that can be quite powerful, I think. I, I think partly because of the way that society does see disabled people through <laughs> what we would usually think of as an un- unhelpful lens, kind of seeing us as victims, um, looking at us from a pity point of view, which we wouldn't, we wouldn't generally, you know, we don't generally encourage that. We don't think that's helpful. It per- you know, perpetuates our oppression. But when you're protesting, when the majority of society sees us that way. When they see a large group of people, disabled people protesting, it does make them stop and think this shouldn't be happening. And what we've realised is, you know, against that picture of increasing disability hostility, and like we were talking about those terrible conversations about the dispensability of disabled people's lives. I think we've also seen that, The majority of people in society do really care and they don't want disabled people to be treated that way. And the government has been consistently very, very nervous of disabled people protesting. So, for example, if disabled campaigners block roads in central London, uh, particularly at rush hour time, which is going to cause gridlock, they don't arrest us. They send the traffic around us for as long as we can be there for. And they know that a lot of disabled people, they will reach a point where they're in pain, will need to go home or their personal assistant is going to have to go off shift. So they know that we're not likely to sustain a protest for more than a couple of hours. So they will just send the traffic causing gridlock around London rather than arrest us. Because if they did that, it would get more media attention. And they don't want the way they got away with what they've done to disabled people since 2010 is by, first of all, that that narrative of benefit scrounging, kind of demonizing, but also covering up what they're doing. And because disabled people's lives are, are generally still so hidden, that's helped them be able to do that. So yeah, all along, what we've been trying to do is make ourselves more visible.
0: Yeah, I think that there's just, I don't know, there's just something so incredible just even observing the history of, you know, the American with Disabilities Act here and just thinking about the mechanisms that disability rights activists have used to visualize their demands in such a in such a visceral, powerful way. Like similarly over here, I think the ADA did get passed ultimately because all of these activists were trying to crawl. They like, they started to That's crawl up the state capital. Yeah. Yeah just to demonstrate how how virtually inaccessible the world around them was and i do think that other activist groups have something to learn from that i guess that sort of brings me to another another thought is just so many of the things that you're talking about are really intersectional that that 60% of disabled people or 60% of the death toll in the UK is disabled people and that it's, that so many of them are houseless. Um, you know, there's obviously the the element of being working class or, you know, maybe a person of color who's also living with disabilities. Like how are you having conversations with other activist groups or do you ever feel like you're having to compete or is it something what's, yeah. What is your approach to kind of talking to other organizers
1: well, my frame of reference is, is Disabled People Against Cuts are a, a national campaign. We were set up specifically to work and make alliances with other groups and we are against all forms of oppression. So we will have contingents on anti-racist marches. We're involved with Sisters Uncut. Um We... All kinds, yeah, all fights against oppression, we want to be there, and we want to be involved in solidarity, but also exactly because of that intersectionality and um, disability is is everywhere there is a higher prevalence there does there is a higher prevalence among black and Asian and minority ethnic communities, but also there is that huge intersection with poverty because poverty is both cause and consequence of impairment and disability. Also <laughs> there are particular ways in which certain groups of, of disabled people will experience different abuse different forms of abuse more highly so I mean generally in terms of sexual abuse disabled people are much more likely to experience it and particularly people with learning disabilities but also of course women disabled women and um, the statistics are are quite Shocking. I think they're upsetting to disabled people, but I think the general public actually is quite shocked because of the way that disabled people are seen as sexist. Of course, sexual abuse is not about sex; it's about power. But a lot of the things that happen to disabled people, non-disabled people don't really believe when they first hear it. So we're always trying to expose like the worst, the worst injustices, and that does involve working with other groups. But that, as I say, that's what we were specifically set up to do. We have an analysis within Disabled People Against Cuts that sees capitalism as our, as our common enemy and we're we'll fighting for a society that's free from all forms of oppression.
0: Yeah, I mean, it really is. It is this, I feel like that has to be clear to people at this point. Obviously, it's not, there's going to be willfully ignorant people who are profiting off of this system that are willing to look the other way. But that has been made so clear to me over the last year, just that this situation got so much worse because of a lack of a social safety net across like our different cultural contexts, that it's all completely interconnected, that if you are forced to go to work because you don't have paid sick leave that you're going to go in when you're sick. Maybe you're going back to public housing that is really poorly maintained and you're living on top of one another, but then you can't go to the hospitals because they're either understaffed or just don't have the resources to take care of you or you, in our case, don't have healthcare. I don't know. There's just, it's all, and it affects so many different groups of like a number of unprotected classes, if you will. It's just, I don't know, like what... What are some of the projects that disabled people against cuts are talking about right now?
1: Projects to improve the situation. Do you mean? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yes. We are trying to look forward to a time when things might become progressive again. So there's a project called the Commission on Social Security, which I'm involved with as co-chair. We are. It it's led. By benefit claimants, people with lived experience of the social security system, but working with universities and academics and researchers and anyone interested really in improving the system to develop proposals for an alternative system. What we've been coming up with is, is very similar to, to other think tanks in terms of having a guaranteed minimum income. That will afford everybody an adequate standard of living and that would reduce poverty. And by reducing poverty, all kinds of other beneficial outcomes for people. In terms of social care, which is a, a huge issue, obviously, for, for disabled people being able to access the same opportunities as other people in life, we're looking at what we're calling a national independent living support service, which would have disabled people involved throughout in in terms of designing it and advising on it and for that what we want is for it to be funded from general taxation and to be free at the point of need a lot of people in the UK actually don't realize you have to pay for social care over here because they think it works like the NHS which is free at the point of need but actually disabled people were left out of the uh, wealth the original welfare settlement that, that happened after you know after the second World War over here and so social care and the provision of it has always been dependent upon resources whereas the NHS and the health system is dependent on the level of need um, so what we want is for social care to be set up on the same footing we don't want people to have to pay for social care so there are hundreds of thousands of people in Social care debt at the moment, having, you know, owe their councils money and fees that they're charged to receive social care are taken from the, you know, small amount of benefits that, that they get, which is leading to more poverty. So that's something where you want that system to address. We want social care to be taken out of the hands of, of local authorities and we want government department to oversee it because we think that through that level of nationalisation it gives greater accountability and transparency and also stops the postcode lottery that we've got here whereby people in one local authority area receive a very different form of support to someone in another area. We want it to, to be more standardised so people know what to expect and it's then easier to challenge challenge if you're not getting what you need but we want it to be delivered locally using local knowledge and using organizations run and controlled by disabled people in in local areas um, to support people to get the individual packages of of social care that they need so those are the major areas that, that we're looking at but for everyone working on developing alternative policies at the moment, I think that the reality is that we're not going to get them until there's a change of government, and that's particularly depressing. Uh, <laughs> therefore, that the Conservatives are still polling higher than, than Labour at the moment. I just don't get it. Mm. It's just,
0: but I'll, I feel like also Tony Blair doesn't even count. You guys have <laughs> been under a Tory government for. 30 years it seems I don't know if that's even really a an exaggeration I don't
1: know (laughs) well a lot of the welfare reform changes and cuts were actually developed under new labor During the 2000s, disabled people thought we were working quite closely with the new Labour government. There was this amazing strategic report that came out of the Prime Minister's Cabinet Office called Improving Lives, and it promised full disability equality by 2025. Um, But actually, meanwhile, they were working with insurance companies from the US on changing the approach to welfare completely. And they were looking at ways whereby they could deny benefits to large numbers of people. So uh, I think the disabled people's movement here has learned a lesson from that, not to be so overly focused on your own issues. I mean, that was part of it is that if the disabled people's movement had been looking more widely and had better links with other, other groups in society who maybe had a better understanding of political economy. We might not have fallen into some of the traps that, that we did. Another one, for example, was that the work that was done under New Labour around personalisation of social care led the way for privatisation. And that's been an absolute disaster in the social care sector. So, yeah, I don't think it's an exaggeration (laughs) um, when you say 30 years of conservative rule. Um, It is depressing because disabled people think again and again the people who are doing this to us are being voted in. I think a lot of, well, the people who have voted them in have often not been aware, really, of what was happening. They have believed what they've heard through the mainstream media and government rhetoric. But then we had the situation created by Brexit. So there were large numbers of people, particularly in the north of England, that voted in favour of that because of how bad their living conditions had got. That They mistakenly thought that that would improve them. And so when Labour in the 2019 general election said, If we get elected, we'll hold a second referendum. For a lot of people, that was a betrayal because the idea of a referendum is surely that you, you stick with the outcome of it. So people felt that they were being dismissed and they, what caused them to want to vote in favour was, was the fact that they were being dismissed, if you like, by a system that was making their lives harder and harder and harder. So, un- unfortunately, the way that that played out in the 2019 general election was that the Conservatives, a particular Conservative leader, Boris Johnson, who changed his mind several times but then decided he was in favour of leave, you know, he championed that. If people don't have access to good information, I think, good political and economic information, then uh, people are, when they're they're in desperate times, and they will look to vote in a way that they think is going to improve their lives. And unfortunately, there are people who run for positions of power who are quite happy to tell untruths in order to get there. The the other problem that that we found in, in 2015, Deepak, we spent that entire election campaign trying to stop disabled people from voting for the racist party UKIP because they promised disabled people that they would help them if they were elected. And people who were very frightened and scared about what was happening, having their benefits taken away, they were thinking of voting for them. But of course, that party is not <laughs> is not a party that represents or cares about disabled people. They actually cynically took down the previous welfare manifesto, which called benefit claimants a class of parasitic a class of parasites, I think, was what called. they called. They took that off their website when they began this, this cynical ploy to get votes from disabled people. And then what we saw in 2015 in Scotland, of course, was the SNP embraced the idea of opposing austerity, and they did very well by that, and they entirely they wiped out Labour in Scotland. And what that meant was that Labour was not going to get elected because they relied, in order to, to kind of overall get elected in the UK, they relied very heavily on the seats on the seats in Scotland. So, had Labour under Ed Miliband before 2015 been harder on austerity and welfare reform, that we fully believe that the Conservatives would not have got re-elected. And that's it's very sad <laughs> in hindsight.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's also classic. I feel like Conservatives are across the board, just really excellent at messaging and telling a certain story. And as you said, people were desperate because of decades of austerity, not because of immigrants. But obviously, that's the story that was being told repeatedly in places like Wales, even though ironically, (laughs) Wales like relied quite heavily, I think, on the European Union's Support and more yeah. than it, the rest of the UK did, but alternatively, it's not like Labour really offered a real alternative to that. They just kind of stood in against something without kind of providing a real alternative to people's
1: suffering, or at least answering to the fact. Yeah, well, having any sort of vision about it. Yeah. Well, they often tailed the conservative messaging because they thought that that was what was popular. Before Corbyn, anyway, so I remember there was a oh this awful mug that came out as part of the labor general election campaign in twenty fifteen you Now I'm voting labor because I support immigration controls. I think it was they swiftly took that off the market, but I mean how awful they just they refused to be tough sorry they they thought that if they weren't seen to be tough on welfare reform, they wouldn't get elected. Whereas we actually had a completely opposite analysis to them that they needed to be. And if they weren't, they weren't going to get elected. And that's you know, exactly what happened and why people in, in Scotland voted in their swathes for a party that was saying that, that they were anti-austerity and anti-welfare reform. I could go on and on about (laughs) the
0: problems of establishment politics because, yeah, there's obviously huge parallels between our systems and the Democrats and the Labor Party and, and whatnot. But I'm wondering, in light of this, like this ethos, the things that we've been talking about, just the state consistently failing to take care of its people and actively actually creating genocide. Because of its austerity measures. And I'm wondering, like, out of all of this for me, be it austerity cuts or police, viol- unchecked police violence or whatever, whatever example you want to use, the state doesn't keep us safe. It's we keep us safe, right? And I'm, I'm wondering what you feel the future is if you are operating in this world where you might have to deal with a Tory government for the next decade or so what does the future of disability rights look like to you if you can't actually always rely on the state to to meet your demands? That might be a hard question.
1: <laughs> no, I mean, it is it is an, an interesting one because it was one I was just thinking about last night, actually, in that... A couple of my close friends in other parts of the country have lost so much social care support, and it really is limiting their lives. And it it does lead you to to wonder if there are different options, communes, cooperatives. I, I think people have, have thought about, but the the problem for anything, <laughs> any most changes require some form of funding or money to set up something new, and that's people don't have any of that anymore. Well, some people have a lot of it. Some people have far too much of it, but the people who need it don't have access to it. We did a paper kind of looking into cooperatives, which were much more popular in the Scandinavian countries, but when they was setting up organizations for their independent living movement. And I think we really missed a trick over here by not doing the same. We opted instead for disabled people's Organizations which completely reliant on local authority funding and increasingly became run on business models, and they've just been completely wiped out really through austerity, through not being able to bid for contracts as the money available for those contracts became you know smaller and smaller. The large Larger organisations working to economies of scale and not having the extra expense of employing disabled people kind of swept up all those contracts. So what that's meant is that individual disabled people who use social care are completely atomised in the community without proper support to manage their individual budgets, employ their personal assistants. It is a very bad situation. But I think, like I say, to set up any new structures really does require at least some form of funding, which which really isn't there. It also requires capacity, which again, really isn't there in that we've lost. We've lost a lot of leading activists and there's a lot of burnout and uh, we've been forced to fight on so many different fronts. All at the same time, I think that going forwards, we just have to, do more of the same, but on a greater scale, particularly in terms of working with allies and kind of uniting the different groups so that we can share resources and support each other. But there is, I think the heartening thing is that there is definitely a huge appetite for change. And I think the pandemic has harnessed that even more. During the early months of the pandemic, there were millions more people trying to claim Social security benefits. And they switched off, interestingly, the Department for Work and Pensions was able to suddenly switch off quite a few of the fundamental mechanisms within the social security system that we'd been campaigning against for, you know, 10 years, such as conditionality and sanctions, whereby if you're not seen to, you know, do like, for example, a 35 hour a week job search in return for your very low benefit payment, then you would be sanctioned and have your benefits taken away. All of those were functions were switched off. As they become switched on again, I think it's going to be interesting to see how people react to that. And I think there's the potential that that will kick in a much wider awareness of the kind of things we need people to be aware of, such as there is not no social security safety net. The things that people have assumed exist don't and haven't for a long time. I think that people are very... Tired and sick of establishment politicians, we of course the danger is that that leads people to go in a direction whereby there's more scapegoating, more populism. Um, what we want, of course, is is to intervene and shape that so that that people get an understanding of what what's actually happening, how the system is actually working, and to you know fight for an alternative to that. I do think. The period of capitalism we're in and things are are so brutal and the brutalities are becoming exposed ever more. We do have such a serious fight on our hands. It is frightening, you know, climate change fighting, fighting literally for the future. It does hearten me how many young people I see coming in who've become politicised. And as they leave university and get more involved in wider activism that perhaps... That's what we're seeing, the leaders for the future that are going to find the different way forwards. I try to focus on that, I think, when things become really difficult. I always think to
0: myself, if you're my age, how could you not be radicalized by this (laughs) moment? I mean, just everything that has happened in our lifetimes, if you were born in the early 90s, has just been... I think a confirmation of the failures of late capitalism of just all of the you just see it with your eyes be it obviously climate in- extinction the Iraq war the recession that happened in 2008 Trump or Boris Johnson just like all of these things have happened in our lifetime and how could you look at all of that and not be
1: yeah Feel the same, but I grew up in a different era. So I grew up under Thatcher, but like my student years were under Blair. And there, there weren't many people around then that shared kind of my, my socialist views. So the increasing radicalism that I've seen, I've just I've been so you know pleased by it that that more people have come to this this realization of what the system is like. That I tend to just focus on that rather than the people who don't see that. But I well, I live I, I live on a working class estate with lots of uh, disadvantage. And what I see in young people here is that they have been very affected by capitalism's message of individualism. And for them, it is, it is materialism, it is consumerism. That That's what drives them day to day, is money for, you know... For consumer goods, for young women, it's so focused on what you look like, what you're doing to your body to try and fit those awful images, unrealistic images of what women should look like that are everywhere. And that's what, yeah, poorer working class people, that's what I see and why they're not, they're not engaging in politics or questioning they're very disenfranchised they think that politicians don't speak for them but they also think that that people who are often they'll think that people who who care about politics and an activists like myself they see me as coming from a completely different world they don't understand my value base because they've grown up with this narrative of individualism like thrust down their throats and that makes me very sad. It makes me sad too, but
0: I am also hopeful that out of all of this alternatives to that sort of production, individual focused ethos Uh is, I think the shoe other shoes going to have to drop at some point. I don't know if this is really happening in the UK much, but out of the pandemic, so many mutual aid groups have been popping yes. all over, around all over the states. Um and I'm I'm part of one myself and it was sort of as a response to just how ill-equipped our healthcare system was to deal with the coronavirus, but just, yeah, like doing groceries for people in our neighborhood or taking them to get their vaccine shot or whatever. I just, I think for me, that feels like a strong path forward if we're going to just consistently have to deal with these government I mean I agree with you I think we absolutely need to keep forcing the issue regardless but in the meantime
1: Mm -hmm. I do think that working class people have always supported each other I think I remember uh, Cameron in the early years would talk about big society and it was really quite patronizing this idea that we all needed to volunteer more because I what I see I mean, I see a lot of sadness, a lot of terrible things in the work that, that I do, but I also see beautiful side of humanity whereby people do take care of each other. They do care. A lot of people's lives um, have a necessity, became taken up by a lot of kind of caring. So for example, even if you have older relatives in dementia care homes, because of the underfunding, you can't just you know, you have to constantly visit and make sure that they're okay, that they're being fed properly, that they're being treated properly. So a large amount of people's times are are being spent looking after each other. But I also, I, I believe that humans are a naturally interdependent species. And that I think we realise more as disabled people, because we can't do things ourselves, we really realise the importance of independency interdependency more. And we don't see it maybe as kind of negatively and shamefully that that maybe mainstream narrative in society tries to get us to. I, I think that People, particularly where your resources are constrained, of necessity, you you become more interdependent, and and I do see that. I mean, I was talking about the the estate where I live. I see a lot of that. I mean, it might be someone who's like knows someone who's shoplifted a load of a load of coffee and then goes around knocking on doors, sharing it with people. So maybe you know, it doesn't come from the best place. But what you get is that sense of everybody. You know, you get a little bit more than you have. You want to share it with your neighbours. There is a real sense of there is a sense of community throughout working, you know, the working class, I think. I think that it just doesn't get portrayed as that. Yeah, but it is definitely there. And it that therefore means that the transformative pr- potential is there, I think, to fight for a society that's based on these values that we do, that the majority of people do hold.
0: I think that's a really nice place to end on. I think, <laughs> yeah, that the, that we need to work because it already exists, that sort of value system of interdependency and caring for one another. I think it absolutely exists, but that is the light that has to shine through in light of all of this austerity and violence against people. Um, Maybe as corny as that sounds, but I just, (laughs) but no, truly, I I really do believe that. And it's all, it's basically all about redistribution and taking care of (laughs) people. But I just, yeah, I just wanted to thank you again, Ellen, for being on the show. This has been really enlightening. And I've, I've also really enjoyed ranting about the, uh, <laughs> the
1: system with you. <laughs> that also makes us feel better, yeah. <laughs> that too, yeah. Taking joy out of
0: taking the piss. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yes. You have to. You have to laugh. I do. That's part. Very strong element within uh, disabled people's campaigning is laughing and being cheeky because that keeps us going.